Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I'm incredibly excited to have you here today. Can uh, you tell us who you are? Uh, I'm Franklin Leonard, the uh, founder of The Blacklist, not the TV show. Um, isn't, that, isn't that a different title? Or it's the uh, same? Well, we have a space in between black and list, whereas uh, they are just The Blacklist, one word. Uh, but it is definitely, we get a lot of people tweeting at us, very uh, frustrated by plot lines in that television show, which is frustrating. <laughs> uh, and I will say, when the show launched, which was after we were a thing, I was like, you know, it's fine. It's a TV show. It'll be gone in a couple years. And they are still here. How many years has that been? I think it's like six or seven That's at this point. That's so funny. So um, tell people what your what our blacklist, blacklist is, is yeah. before we jump into a very fun and exciting conversation, which I have yeah. been uh, very excited to, to get you yeah. on to talk about. Uh, yeah. So the blacklist uh, started as an annual list of Hollywood's most liked unproduced screenplays that I started doing in 2005 when I was working as a junior executive for Leonardo DiCaprio's production company. And it literally was as simple as me emailing my peers and asking for their 10 favorite unproduced scripts and then collating that information and putting it out under a quasi-subversive name. Uh, that be became very quickly something of an arbiter of taste and a predictor of future success for a lot of these scripts. You know, uh, a third of them over 15 years have been produced. Uh, they've made over $28 billion in worldwide box office, four of the last 13 best pictures, 11 of the last 26 screenwriting Oscars, including most recently Jojo Rabbit, were scripts that were on the list. Um, and in the, the last seven and a half years, we've sort of built a, a, a organization that, you know, sort of sees as its North Star, identifying and celebrating great screenwriting uh, and the people that do it wherever we find them. So there's a platform now where anybody on earth who's written an English language screenplay can upload it for a fee and have it evaluated for a fee. And if it's good, we will tell the industry, hey, this is a good script. You should do something with it. And if it's bad... Uh, they get feedback uh, with some observations about its greatest strengths and weaknesses. Uh, and then, you know, we give them full transparency uh, around how many people are looking at their script. And I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. If we are not getting you traction on your script and we will not be able to for a not good script, please stop giving us your money. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can't, there's nothing we can do. Um, and then we do a lot of incubation stuff. We have three screenwriters labs. We do live reads. We're bringing back a podcast that will have sort of table reads of the best scripts that we find. Um, and we started producing. Um, and I'm in the process of trying to raise a film fund so that when we find these great scripts that for whatever reason Hollywood is overlooking, we can be the ones to, to get it made. Because what better way is there to celebrate a great script than to get it made with the involvement of the writer? So here's the big question I have for yeah. you. Uh, as someone who has you know, spent his time in many, many uh, different fields of, of where people sell writing. Yeah. So they sell words by the pound, journalism, yeah. books, magazines, so on and so forth. It seems like Hollywood is the most fucked up of all of them. It's like the system is designed. I always tell people this. It's like if you're a journalist, right, mm -hmm. and you're writing a story uh, at the Times, yeah. uh, for example, there's an apparatus that is there to help get that story out. It is literally it's like yeah. one of those kids' toys where you squeeze it and the and the goo right. comes out at the end. Like yeah. it is it is that's what this there's editors and photographers and copy editors and and there's places for it to go and headlines and it's like if it's shit, someone will make it better. Right. And the same happens with books, the same happens with everything. Yeah. And you come to Hollywood and it is the complete opposite way around. And whereas there's executives everywhere and people being like, no, 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 yeah. no. Even for the good scripts that end right. up on the blacklist. Yeah. And I can't under – I understand. Look, I get that there is – there's for certain movies that are a $100 million movie, it makes yeah. sense, right? But 
Parasite, for example, yeah. I do not believe would have been Parasite in America. That, not to be a spoiler alert here, but yeah. like the the big massive yeah, moment the that happens, yeah. the reveal in the middle, some moron executive would have been like, "We should put that in uh, on page five of the script." You yeah, know, it's a little too late in the movie. And so I can't disagree it, about that, that observation specifically. Yeah, how does the, how is it that this industry, which has the most influence, I think, of any industry. I would agree. Uh, why is it so broken? Yeah, you know, I look, I, I can't say that it's the most fucked up because I haven't spent a lot of time in other uh, industries, but I, I do think that there's some very I mean, specific... I mean, oil is pretty I mean, fucked there, up. Yeah, Politics, there, I, I feel like... In the storytelling writing world. In the storytelling world. writing world, I don't, I don't think it's an unfair statement. And, and I think that really where that comes from is, is the, the cash at stake. Um, I think, and again, I, I can't speak to this with any degree of, of sort of expertise regarding other industries, but, you know, even a script like Parasite, right? Someone's got to put up $12 million to make that movie. And I think that the sort of the many intermediate people who are involved in the, the transition of a great piece of writing to a movie that gets distributed widely, um, they are all constantly balancing the okay, do I believe in this? And this, is this a good movie? And do I think that I can make money on it? And how sure am I that I can? And what are the stakes for failure? Right? So, you know, I, I'm, I'm highly sympathetic to people who have to make a decision between, okay, I've read what I think is a really good screenplay, but I don't think I've ever read anything like it. And I have to make the decision about whether the company that I work for or run or my boss uh, runs is going to invest $50 million on it. And if they don't make that money back... I may be looking for a job, my boss may be looking for a job, and literally everybody down the line may be looking for a job. And, and so I think that there's this constant, you know, it, it's, the, it's the difference between playing defense and offense on some level. I think people are always playing defense. I think they're always looking to cover failure rather than achieve success. Um, and the consequences of that are you, you have an inherently conservative system when it comes to narrative um, rather than a sort of wildly, wildly progressive one that is taking real ambitious shots at telling great stories. That's my theory. Um, it's based on sort of my 15 years of experience in the business, and, and I think there are probably other interpretations of it, but I really do think the capital thing has a lot to do with it. I also think that because so many people are trying to find the way into the business, right? Like if you lose your job, there's a thousand people who are ready to take it at a 70% pay cut. Um, and that's true for screenwriters, et cetera. Everyone is always in a constant sense of triage um, around, okay, how do I, like, what's the shorthand I can use to either pass on this thing or push it forward, but in a way that's going to protect me? Um, and I think a lot of the conventional wisdom about what works in this town is all convention and no wisdom. <laughs> and I think that, you know, something like Parasite is a great example, right? Like, if you had told most people in this town that a Korean film was going to make $200 million worldwide and win four Oscars, mm -hmm. if not more, um, um, and, and really sort of, you know, stomp the world when it comes to all the things that matter in this town, uh, no one would have believed you. That assumption wasn't based on any real, you know, it wasn't based on data. It wasn't based on a historical analysis of, well, these other Korean films have had the kind of support that Paris like got, and therefore it's impossible. It was just based on a gut sort of set of conventional assumptions that, you know, were born decades ago and have real, no real relevance in 2020. 
So I bumped into you the night of the Oscars yep. uh, at an event, and uh, it was a lot, lots of buzz around Parasite. Yeah. I, I just want to say for the record, I predicted it would win Best Picture. I, I did about, as well. About I'm very eight, proud of about it. About eight months ago when I first saw it. And- I should have put <clears throat> money on it. I actually predicted that it would win the four Oscars that it won and really should have gone to Vegas. Uh, kinda, next year. Kind of regretting that now. <laughs> um, but, but it was – and I said to you um, – I had read this book uh, earlier this year, which was a, a book on you know changing economics and uh, and the way to kind of change this capitalist society we live in that is clearly very broken. Yeah. And one of the aspects of the book um, actually focuses on the film industry, and it shows that 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 over time uh, Hollywood has done less and less and less auteur movies, artistic movies, mm. or movies that are, you know, are, are originals. Yeah. Uh, and um, in its place have become Star Wars 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, yeah. 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 12, and so on. And, and I said, do you think that this Parasite winning will change that? Yeah. What do you think? Uh, I can't remember what my answer was that night. And I, my... You were drunk. Yeah, well, <laughs> no, I, I, I more because it, my, my, my levels of optimism change based on like the moment. So what do you think right now? I am optimistic that Parasite's success will create an opportunity for more people to do things of Parasite's scale. I think that it will that there will be some people who will be able to look back and say the reason my movie got green light was Parasite's success. Mm. I don't think that it changes the systemic issues that uh, result in the industry as you describe it. Right. So in, in the same way that, that Moonlight's win didn't change every, like it wasn't like everybody was just desperate to make black queer movies overnight. Um, and so I don't know that that, that Parasite success alone uh, is going to change everything because I think people will look at it and I think if, you know, looking back historically at these sort of things that violated every assumption that, that people had, they look at it as the exception that proves the rule, not as evidence that maybe new rules are necessary. Um, and look, again, I, I'm sympathetic to the economic pressures that cause the sort of proliferation of remakes, sequels, and franchises. You know, uh, domestic box office largely flat, uh, international box office is growing, and, and the assumption about how you sell movies internationally is, is that you sell something that will sell based on the poster uh, or the name. Um, and I actually don't, I, look, I love big franchise movies when they're done well. Like, I love Black Panther. I, I, I'm looking forward to its sequel. Um, and I think there's a lot of those movies that I love. But again, for me, it's less about, is this movie a remake or a sequel? But like, how well executed is it? Is it? How much does it, uh, you know, but, give us new information about what it means to be alive in 2020? Um, and how much does it introduce something new to the culture? Um, and I think those movies can do that, but more traditionally, you will find them more with these sort of auteur-driven, smaller-budget movies, and I hope that we don't lose those in favor of only doing these sort of remake sequels, etc. Like I'm interested in the full bundle of what Hollywood makes, not. But it seems you know, like the drift. It seems like those those remakes have started to wane. It's like when you look at the numbers, a lot of them are not making back. You know, they're not making what they once did. I, I yeah, mean, look, you're I'm not wrong. I am a Star Wars fan through and through. I didn't see the last couple of movies. Like yeah. this was like what, it's the same storyline, but just in, in a different set. I would recommend checking out Ryan Johnson's The Last Jedi. Like right. it's controversial for a reason, although I thought it was exceptional. But I, I do think that there are, and I think a lot of the Marvel movies, particularly the ones that are not sort of the the Avengers ones, are taking some real interesting shots 
I know Black Panther is the easy example, but I think Thor, for example, is a meditation on refugees and the crisis of movements of people in 2020, so much so that the climactic action sequence happens over Led Zeppelin's immigrant song, and it's not a coincidence. Um, so I, again, I, I think that, but I think you're, you're right. The sort of stock and trade remakes and sequels are not doing as well, but I think that reflects more people taking a conservative approach to making them rather than something endemic to being a remake or a sequel or a franchise. You are listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Where does TV play a role in what's happening in Hollywood right now? So I forget the actual number, but it's, yeah. it's I think, is it 600 TV shows this year or I mean, something insane? I, that actually sounds low to me. I think it might be more. <laughs> like I, but it's, Six, it's, yeah. 600 just from Netflix? Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, I, you're, you're right on the order of magnitude, but, I, but yeah. we're, headed, we're headed to a, a higher one. Do you, is this, you know, some people say it's the golden era of TV. Yeah. It's, you know... I personally have a hard time finding much that I want to watch. No. Uh, most of it is is garbage, in my personal opinion. It it do you think that you know? I, it's interesting. I came down here to LA about five years ago now, and I came from um, uh, from Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. where I'd been living for for four years right. before New York, and I'd been covering. Apple and Facebook and Google and all these companies. And when you cover them, you go to the companies and you spend time inside. And you see these kind of, look, there's a lot of fucked up stuff they do, a lot of really bad stuff. But there are certain things they do pretty well. Like, for example, I remember the first time I was at Google and I found out that you can't, that you were not allowed to have a meeting uh, if one one pizza couldn't feed everyone in in the meeting. It, it's a smart idea. I, like, I did not know that rule, yeah, but that's I, I a good rule. I don't know if they still employ No, but it, it's but a good rule. A, yeah. It's a smart rule. You know, I've been in, I was at the New York Times, I remember once, and there was a meeting with 40 people trying to decide, like, the color of the logo for the Twitter <laughs> account. Like, you know, and, yeah. and it seems like, and I remember when I first got to Hollywood and I just optioned one of my books, and I was thinking, to my, I went to... I went through the process here and I was like, this is ripe for disruption. This, this, if yeah. any industry is ripe to be kind of, you know, taken apart and put back together in a much easier, better, more efficient way from by Silicon Valley specifically or by tech, it's Hollywood. And yeah, I don't think that's happening. Right? I, agree. I feel like, I feel like that the distribution model has changed. Yeah. Like, I don't have to go to a video store. Right. I can just like use a remote, mm-hmm. but I feel like every other aspect of it is completely still as, weird and and broken in many respects do you kind of think that we're we're going to there'll be some point where where we actually fix it or is that is is the brokenness like a part of the system that makes it work well i i think the brokenness creates a sort of byzantine organization that makes it very difficult for people who are outside the system to disrupt it right and i think some of that is by design i think the sort of people that are inside the the moat uh, feel a little bit of protection by the fact that like this is how things are done and if you don't 
understand how things are done, it's going to be very hard for you to do things in this space. Um, I think distribution is obviously probably the uh, one part outside of the moat that has already been disrupted. But I think that slowly but surely, at least in part by necessity, but also in part because production and distribution costs continue to go down overall, uh, the industry is going to have to respond. It's going to have to be more efficient. It's going to have to do a better job of servicing the, the whole audience that is now available to it, right? You can make a very, it's very easy to make the argument that for the, for the vast majority of Hollywood history, you had an industry that existed first and foremost to make content for roughly 25% of the population. And, I, and by that, I mean specifically white men in America. Um, and it was sort of made for and by that, for that community, by that community. Um, but guess what? There's a whole lot of other people that are watching movies and they've watched what was available to them. But as you start to make movies that are by them and about them, there's money to be made. And so these shifts have to take place, but it really is sort of, it's largely responding to market forces. And, and as somebody who sort of believes that at the end of the day, I don't really care what you do or think when you go home, but as long as your sort of behavior in, in a professional environment and in a market sense is one that's fair and sort of trying to capture as much profit as possible, I think those changes will happen. Um, but no, I look, I, on the TV front, I think what's happening is you're seeing a massive proliferation of, of places to put television, right? We've gone from four networks when I was watching TV as a, as a college student to literally hundreds now, and the internationalization of the entire industry and so there's just more there are more people that need content to put out so you're getting more people with shop opportunities to make that content a lot of it is going to be bad some of it is going to be good and I think we, there are probably more good shows available for us to watch now than there were 30 years ago has the percentage of what is good improved I don't have the numbers on it. I suspect it hasn't changed by much, right? It's just that you're seeing more good and more bad. Um, but I, I do think that there are opportunities to improve the, uh, the percentage of the bundle that is good. And, and I think that some of the work that we're doing at The Blacklist really gets to the core of that. And I think a lot of that starts with writing. Um, I'm biased. That's sort of where I focused my entire career. But Harvard Business School did a study at the end of last year and found that movies that were made from scripts on the annual Blacklist, right, like the scripts that people said they loved, separate from a commercial consideration, made 90% more in revenue on average than movies made from scripts not on The Blacklist, controlling for all other factors. So is that saying that movies that are more that the people are less likely to take a gamble on are actually the ones that are going to do better? I think it says that, that movies that are made from scripts that people in the industry love for the quality of their script give you a better chance of making a profitable movie. Uh, and by the way, this shouldn't be surprising. If you have a good script, you have a better chance of making a good movie. If you have a good movie, you have a better chance of making money. But I think that we've gone so far from that fundamental reality of good storytelling being the best being the best business model that even that that realization that blacklist scripts make 90% more in revenue than non-blacklist scripts seems like it should be surprising and world-changing, but it goes to the fundamental reality that good storytelling is good business. When you, you just mentioned that the obvious of the fact that for a long, long time, there were just white men making stuff for white men. Yeah. And and that has clearly changed. You you know started this conversation with that. One thing that I am curious to get your thoughts on is um, over, the la over the last few years, we have seen the Me Too movement completely yeah. not 
change this industry, but have a massive impact on it. Um, and yeah. and in, in in writers' rooms, you know, I have friends that are showrunners, and you know, fifty percent of the people it used to be just they would just pick it would be white men right. in the room mostly. Yeah. Um, and now at least fifty percent are uh, people of color, women. That would uh, that some, would still be the rare writers' room, but I I, I think so some, some do studios, some do exist now. Some studios are demanding it, um, which is great. But the qu- the question I have is. Let's just say hypothetically that mm-hmm. we, you know, in those instances where people are demanding it, um, and we are seeing it happen, yeah. does the 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 content still hasn't properly made it out? It's like a right. couple. It takes a couple of years. Yeah. Do you think that we're going to start to see content change as a result of these movements that will be? <laughs> more broad, wider? I mean, it, what, what do you think is going to happen with that? Well, I, I think we first have to start with the fact that, that there hasn't been dramatic change yet. I think that, that we're ha- finally having the conversation, but if you look at the numbers, you know, I think this year was a high watermark in that instead of the usual 4% of the top, you know, 300 movies released by uh, Hollywood uh, directed by women, it's like, 11%. And, and 11% is far beneath 50%. And, you know, 50% of the directing graduates uh, coming out of major film schools in the U.S. are women. So somewhere, and it's it's the myriad steps in between graduating from school as a, as a directing student and getting your movies made, um, there's a drop-off. And that drop-off isn't happening because the talent isn't there. The drop-off is happening because, you know, whether you're a woman, you're a person of color, or you're a woman of color, or you're a person with a disability, or any number of other uh, communities that have historically been sort of shunted from the industry, you are being undervalued, right? People are making the assumption that you are not as capable as your peers who are white men, uh, despite all concrete evidence to the contrary. Um, but yeah, it's my belief that that when you see greater diversity in the industry, you will see uh, better movies, more diverse movies, and more profitable movies. Because right now, the industry historically, the industry has been pulling from a, a talent pool representing roughly 25% of the population. When we start pulling from a talent pool representing 100% of the population, there's greater competition for all of those slots. There's greater competition to be a director. And presumably, if we're if we're making decisions based on actual talent and not the assumption of talent, we will see more talented people making movies, making better movies, and those movies should do better in the marketplace. So you're saying that the Me Too movement hasn't actually made a massive change yet? I'm saying that we still have a very long way to go. And and, and how, so how does that happen? Because it just seems like it's when you look at, I mean, look, I think when you look at Silicon Valley, for example, which has got diabolical numbers when it comes yeah. to like women co-founders and so on and so forth. Your there is definitely something that's changing. It's not. It's the same thing. It's like going from four percent to eleven yeah. percent. Uh, when you look at media, I've definitely seen a a much a much yeah. bigger shift. Right. I'd say so. Um, I remember last year there were like days where every single byline on the front page of the New York Times was a woman. Right. Uh, yeah, that's great. It, which is amazing, and you see women editors running running mm-hmm. all the sections of the paper, um, not all of them, but a lot of them, yeah. and so on. So why is it that it hasn't actually proliferated into this industry? It's a good question. I think that part of it has to do with um, the fact that so many of the decisions that in this, this industry are made are subjective, right? That it's just like a gut feeling who you're going to hire for a job. Um, and a lot of the people that are hiring for these jobs are sort of white men that ha- have a lot of biases. And I say that as a, as a black man who has his own biases, right? 
Um, and I think that we all, as human beings, need to do a better job of interrogating our biases to make sure that we're not making decisions consciously or unconsciously that are not based on sort of rational assessments of talent. Um, I also think that, you know, I think people have a tendency to talk about these things because the talk provides cover when it's, and that's a lot easier than making actual change. Hmm. Like I remember last year seeing a lot of people celebrating the fact that um, the number, the percentage of first time television directors was 40% for women, which is a high watermark, right? And that is great news that 40% of women were, like of the first time directors for TV that year, 40% of them were women. And it's good that that number has gone up. But what that also means is that more men were first time directors in television than women, which means that the gap between the number of men directing television and the number of women has actually gone up, not down. So I'm interested in a day when we're talking about 60% of the first time directors are women, and that gap can start closing rather than continuing to expand. So look, progress is good, but I think we need to be very aggressive about not celebrating progress that is far, far, far from where we need to be, and not at all, again, representative of the talent that's on display. Because the reality is, is that, and we've, we've sort of interrogated these numbers on the Blacklist website, you know, we looked at every, so men and women have roughly the same distribution of scores on the website, right? It's a pretty standard bell curve around 5.5, with one difference. Women's numbers fall off at the bottom. Like women are not submitting scripts that are poorly reviewed to our site, which doesn't surprise me because women culturally know that they're less likely to get a second chance if the first time they walk into the arena, it isn't good. But the result of that means that for every genre on our website, women have a higher score than men. So it's really difficult for me to wrap my head around the idea that like 25%, 30% of the people that are hired for writing jobs in Hollywood are women when there's plenty of evidence that women, that there's no correlation or connection between your gender and your ability to write well for television or film. Uh, and then again, if you have, from a pure capitalist perspective, you will make more money when the people that are making your content and deciding about who the audience is and what the audience wants is better representative of that audience. Like, unless you happen to think that for some reason, white men have a more astute assessment of what, an, of what the international audience, men, women, people of color, disabilities, <laughs> queer, whatever, unless you think that for some reason, it is, it is. It is, it is antithetical to, make, to good business yep. that the industry is so defined by the decisions of folks who are not representative of the world or even the American movie-going population. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. I want to shift gears a little bit. The We're kind of in the midst of uh, an election, if you haven't noticed. We, we are indeed. Uh, and, uh, I can't stop noticing. It's kind of a problem. Uh, and uh, I know you're quite vociferous on Twitter about these indeed. things. And I only know that because you tell me because I don't actually use Twitter that much anymore. And a I'm wise a man. lot better for it. You are a it. happier man for it. Um, but I, I, I want to stay in Hollywood on this topic yeah. a little bit. One thing that's been really interesting being here is that, you know, you get these invites or these, especially yeah. as a journalist, you know, I get these invites to like, Pete Buttigieg is going to be here or Warren's yeah. going to be there. And it's, and you know, Biden and this person and that person throughout for the last, you know, year and a half. Yeah. And, and I, I don't know who Hollywood supports <laughs> and yeah. I can't tell if it's that they support everyone because they're like, let's just, th let's just get a Democrat in yeah. there or if it's, 
Do you have any insight? Yeah, well, I think I think Hollywood. I think the important thing to remember about Hollywood is that we are as sort of diverse as the rest of the country is. Uh, I mean, certainly, I think if you had to take a survey or you did like a primary of people who work in Hollywood, it may be a little bit more Democrat than than the country, but. We all come from different places, and I think our preferences for who we would want as president uh, reflect that. You know, I, I grew up, I was an army brat who grew up in West Central Georgia, black, uh, who ended up going to Harvard, um, and, and my preference is Elizabeth Warren. I know plenty of people that, um, you know, are they're just like, look, at the end of the day, my only priority is being Donald Trump, and I think Bloomberg is the only person can, who can do it because he's going to put in billions of his own dollars to do it. And so they prefer uh, Mike, Mike Bloomberg. So I think that, you know, there is a diversity of opinion in Hollywood about, you know, sort of the best person to be president and the person most likely to beat Donald Trump, as there is throughout the Democratic Party. I think most people I know certainly would like to see Trump not have a second term, and we're all trying to figure out what the best path to do that. One thing that I do want to say, though, on that subject is it is really interesting to me that Hollywood likes to wrap itself in this sort of mantle of progressivism, right, and say, oh, well, we're the ones who can save the America from itself, when at the same time, the, the mix of directors who directed movies at studios over the last 10 years is less diverse than Trump's cabinet, mm. right? Um, he's wow, got, that's, uh, that's, that's saying Betsy something. Betsy DeVos, Elaine Chen, and uh, Ben Carson. Right. So, so, and, and wait, Betsy DeVos, what, what about, well, I mean, she, she, in the cabinet, right. You've yeah. got two women and one black man, oh, two people of say, color. What is Betsy DeVos. And then I was right. like, Oh, she's a woman. That's right. right. I just think of her as like a, like someone with devil horns yeah. that like, you know, but, but I don't disagree. <laughs> but, 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 but again, and, and I think that it's, it's, it's interesting, right. That, that we all like to tisk tisk people in Alabama who may be at a Trump rally chanting, build the wall. But for a 10 year period from like 2005 to 2015, I think 50% of the Latinx immigrants that were shown on television were shown engaged in a crime, right? The reason that America and the world has a lot of the assumptions that it has about other people in the world is because of the myths and stories that Hollywood tells. And I think we as an industry need to do a lot better job being responsible about the, the narratives that we put into the world and make sure that they accurately affect the world in which we live. And I would go so far as to say that I think a lot of that has to do with the gender reality we see in this presidential race. We make assumptions about who women are, what role they play, their capability for leadership, and they're capable for leadership in the most important office in the, in the world. Um, and those have been defined by the stories that we tell each other, and there is no bigger storytelling megaphone than Hollywood. Well, but that's, no, it's a really interesting point. And, and, and it's interesting because, you know, in Hollywood, the classic script, you have to have the villain and, you know, the protagonist mm -hmm. and the antagonist and so on. And so, like, when you get these spy movies, is it going to be the Russians or the Chinese or the... It's not going to be the Chinese anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's just not. It's just not, I know. But, um, you know, is it is it, you know, uh, someone who's Muslim? Is it, you know, what... It, yeah. it always has to be. And yet, we don't ever see it the other way around mm -hmm. coming from here, yeah. right? Uh, even though there's plenty of stories. Absolutely. Yet on the flip side, you have this kind of uh, this new—I was about to say resurgence, but it's more of a surgence no. uh, of of true crime stories that are being told in yeah. podcasts and television, where most of the bad guys are white guys, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> it is true. The true crime genre has definitely become—I mean, look—it's Jeffrey Dahmer, yeah. and like you know, we can go through the whole long list, the Unabomber, and so on and so forth. And so, but it's interesting that that they. 
in the true crime aspect, mm-hmm. they'll tell the truth, but in the not true crime aspect, they won't. They'll yeah. they'll pick the uh, and it, it again goes back to what you said earlier, right? I mean, it goes back to this this point that uh, of who's making the decisions and 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 right. how they go about doing it. Right, because profitable because the true crime story you can't really get around that. It's like it's, <laughs> true, it's a true story. Like this, is, we're just going to tell the true story. Yeah. But but when it comes to fiction, yeah, you have people sort of projecting and saying, well, this is what the audience wants. This is what the audience will tolerate. Yeah. Um, and so we have to give them that. And that typically means a, a white male here, a white male able-bodied hero between the ages of like 25 and 40. Um, and and then you sort of populate around them to tell a hero's journey, mm-hmm. right? Um, and again, I think we default to the assumption that that's all audiences want. I mean, look, I heard early in my career, I heard constantly, female-driven action doesn't work. Don't even bother pitching a female-driven action movie, right? That's why when Hunger Games went out in manuscript form, like every studio, except for Lionsgate or Summit, I guess at the time, or whichever one it was, but not the major studios, passed on it. It's why Paramount put Twilight into turnaround. Now, I don't think that Hunger Games was the thing that made people all of a sudden want women dr- female-driven action. One can make an argument that Titanic in many ways is female-driven action, and really most of James Cameron's films are. But that was what we were told. That was a rule that dominated the business. Not unlike the rule that said, oh, you can't sell black movies outside of the US. Not possible, right? Forgetting the fact that Coming to America made $200 million foreign in the 80s. Forgetting the fact that Big Mama's House 2 made like, 75 million foreign. Coming to America is uh, a classic. I mean, obviously. Forgetting the fact that Will Smith is, was one of the biggest movie stars in the world, if not the biggest movie star in the world for years, and Denzel Washington was close behind him. And there were only arguably like 20 movie stars that you could say had value internationally. And if two of them were black, statistically, that means that, you know, you can sell black people abroad. I mean, I still remember hearing that, uh, you know, do we think Black Panther can make $100 million opening weekend? That was the big question on everybody's mind before it came out. I think it did 240 in its first five days. I remember hearing the same thing about can we sell Black Panther in China? And when I was in Beijing for the film festival two years ago, I had a conversation with a journalist there and mentioned that, you know, there were a lot of people who thought that Black Panther wouldn't do well in China. And she sort of laughed and said, why? It's a Marvel movie. You know, and that night and the next night when I was walking back to my hotel in Shanghai, there's a giant billboard, an Apple billboard advertising the iPhone with a dark skinned black model. Now, Apple seems to think they can sell their products with black people, but the film industry doesn't. If I had to choose between who has a better sense of their audience and their product marketing, I'm probably going to guess Apple. And not for nothing, I think that unfortunately... It's almost a double racism phenomenon happening there where it's like, we don't think black movies can sell abroad, not because we don't want them to, but because the Chinese are more racist than we are and therefore they're not going to want to go see these movies. And fundamentally, I think that people just want to see good movies. You, you can't Absolutely. convince Absolutely. me that people will listen to black music and watch black athletes and cheer them on, but somehow the, 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 the medium of cinema makes it impossible. But this is what's so frustrating. It's like, what, but why, did, why, does, why did 12 people get to decide that? You know, it's like, I, yeah. like and why can't the industry... Well, not as... Not as like, you know, I mean, going back to this, uh, to what you said earlier, the system is designed not to let people in. All systems are designed not to let people in. You yeah. know, the photography industry is designed not to let uh, outsiders in. And look what happened. Instagram comes along. And, yeah. other, like, and you know, the iPhone and, 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 and mm-hmm. it destroyed the camera industry and yeah. the film industry and so on. Um, look at journalism. I mean, it was a mm-hmm. union-based. I remember being at the, the New York Times 
15 years ago and there was a guy who came and drunk every day and it took them three years to fire them <laughs> right. fire the guy because who would like nap in his in his cubicle and whatnot yeah. because of the union and, right. they, and 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 then along comes buzzfeed and and axios mm-hmm. and this that and the other yep. and like have, and and yet in this industry you have a dozen people who are deciding what garbage gets mm-hmm. greenlit and who gets you know which white person gets to be the lead and this that and the other yeah and and yet the industry has been able to kind of inculcate itself against the effects of, you know, outsiders coming in and fixing it. Yeah, I would argue it's capital as a barrier to entry, principally. Like, like photography, a lot of people could afford cameras, but, yeah. but it was still more than your average person. And, and I think the rise of the internet changes a lot of things. And I think that, you know, now anybody that has an iPhone uh, can literally shoot a movie, edit it, in their hands and make it available to billions of people via the internet immediately. And, and the quality of the camera is better than would have cost you $25,000 even 10 years ago. Yeah. So I, what's exciting to me about sort of the future is that we're in a situation now where if you are capable of telling a good story in a visual medium, you are either going to get sucked up into the industry because your talent sort of evinces, you know, suggests that people can make money on it, or you're just gonna go around the system. And because there's such a proliferation of outlets, be they Netflix, Amazon, Apple, and and whatever else emerges, uh, if the studios don't listen to those people, the the new platforms are going to snap them up. And I think we're going to see more and more of that. And I think you're going to see more and more of the folks who are sort of coming from outside the system being sort of non-traditional compared to, you know, the identities of the folks who have gotten to do it for years. So one of the the jokes uh, um, in Hollywood is uh, if you have a project at Quibi right now. Yeah. Quibi is the, for people who don't know, it's the platform that is doing 10-minute 10 minutes little show. I think it's like seven, seven to minutes, 10. You know? Yeah. It's basically like the amount of time in between commercial breaks and traditional television. Yeah. And they've, they had a bunch of ads at the Super Bowl. Some yeah. of the ads are actually quite funny. They were. Um, and, but the, you know, Jeffrey Katzenberg is backing it. And yeah. the idea is, is, of course, like that uh, people will subscribe to an app on their phone and watch these little quibby movies and so on and so forth. I don't know if it's going to work. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think anybody knows for sure if it's going to work. But, yeah. but, that being said, I do think that there is a moment, we're at a moment in time where the delivery of content and how long it lasts and how long you have to watch it for and where you watch it and all those things is, is yeah. we are at that right period of time. And I'm curious, do you have any idea, you know, especially as you, as you read all these scripts that come in on the blacklist yeah. and so on, you know, is there... Are we at the precipice of kind of like a new era of storytelling, or is it that the hero's journey is the hero's journey and it just is two hours long? Well, look, I, I think that there are some basic storytelling tenets that have existed in sort of human communication as long as human communication has existed, right? On some level, like most stories, whatever their structure, have a beginning, middle, and end. That's sort of what feels fulfilling. Games. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, e- even the narratives around sports, there's a beginning, middle, and end, right? Um, and so I don't think those things change. But I think the form and the distribution mechanism and whether we watch something on our phone or on an iPad or on a television or on a 40-foot screen, I think those things are changing radically. And I actually think it's a really exciting thing because 
Look, I grew up in a small town in South Georgia, right? Like what the town did you grow up Columbus, in? Georgia. It's okay. like Fort Benning is probably what we're best known for. Um, and, you know, we were not getting indie films at the local multiplex. And so for me, my film education really took place after I graduated from high school and sort of, you know, was living in Cambridge and then in New York and would go to Kim's Video every day and like rent three Criterion movies and, and just watch them. What I'm really excited about is we live in an era now where if you are you know, me at 15 or, or, or anybody at 15, you, can, you have access to the entire history of cinema almost on your laptop, on your mm -hmm. phone. If you want to watch um, Fellini, it's available to you no matter where you live. You don't have to leave your house. So if you have a disability, you have access to that stuff. Add to that, so, you know, historically, you know, there's a story about Tarantino, like, working at a video store, and that's where he had his film education. You don't have to work at a video store now. You don't have to live in a city that has an indie cinema. You just have to love movies. I don't movies. think you actually technically can work at a video well, store Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Touche. That is, you're absolutely right. Those jobs are long since gone. But, but you, you have to have an internet connection, either via Wi-Fi or, 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 or via 5G or 4G or whatever. All you have to have is a love of movies. Combine that with the fact that, you know, there's a generation of kids coming up right now that have been making movies of a sort, whether it's TikTok or Instagram or whatever, on their phones since they were young children. I'm super excited for the stories that are about to get made now. And there's two really exciting examples already. Uh, there's this kid, Philip Yeomans, who made a movie the summer after his junior year of high school called Burning Cane. That was his, the, his application to NYU film school was this film. He gets into NYU, he applies to Tribeca, gets the movie in, and he's already think, he thought he'd already won. That movie then wins the Tribeca Film Festival. Wow. Ava DuVernay's company, Array, acquires it. It's available on Netflix now. He is, I think he may have just turned 20, right? Wow. And he, the movie's good. This is not like, a, oh, well, it was, a, it was a young black kid, so we gave him a, the, the top prize at Tribeca. Like, the kid made a really exciting movie that, frankly, invokes Terrence Malick, right? And if you talk to him about cinema, like, that's what he's interested in. Similarly, I, I was put in touch with, with, a group, with a filmmaking team out of rural Nigeria last summer via Twitter, um, who's a, it's a bunch of kids aged 11 to 19 who call themselves the critics who rule the world, who make little sci-fi movies using their cell phones and like an old model laptop that are really strong. They made this Star Wars movie that was as good as I've seen from some film school kids. And they are living 400 miles, I think, from Lagos in Nigeria, and they love movies. And when we Skyped, I was like, what kind of movies are you guys into? And I was expecting, you know, big studio stuff. And they were like, we love Bong Joon-ho, we love Scorsese. Like, they were film fans, and they've been able to watch this stuff because they had access to the internet. So I, I'm actually very optimistic about the future uh, of film because I think that all of a sudden, more people have at their disposal the tools necessary to, to, to make films and to learn how to make films better and make them available. And I think that if the, the, the traditional industry doesn't respond by finding ways to you know, incorporate them into what the industry is doing, the industry is just going to get left behind. And that could be Quibi, that could be some other platform that some 15-year-old is working on building in his garage right now. I don't know. But I do know that there's a wild amount of talent that for the first time has an access to actually exploit that talent for themselves. And the industry is going to have to figure it out or it's kind of going to be tough for them. You just mentioned... Uh 
the name of that group and I remember seeing something about them uh, which brought me to actually reminded me about a question I have for you about critics. So one thing that has been fascinating to me is that the world that we live in today everyone is a critic. Yeah. Everything, right? And that is something that has been a fundamental change to everything. uh, There's a doctor that lives um, uh, a few a few houses down yeah. from me and he was explaining to me that uh, one of his patients was like oh I read your uh, Yelp page uh, some Yelp reviews about you and he's like I don't have a Yelp and he's like oh you don't get to decide if you have a Yelp some pe- some of your patients have written <laughs> like negative exactly. and he was like well how do I get it taken down he's like you don't get to decide yeah, that, you don't get to decide that yeah. and um, uh, and it's which is a wild concept yeah. right that like that anything is up anything can be can be reviewed I you know I, people review this podcast sometimes negatively <laughs> sometimes positively I don't get yeah, it same with the that. same with the blacklist yeah uh, we try to be responsive to criticism but yeah but in the film industry it's had one of the big i mean in, in restaurants and so on too it, it has have an impact but uh i guess politics is the one industry it doesn't do shit with but but in the film industry in television it is it, it can make a break right yeah. you know rotten tomato scores imdb scores um and i don't i never understood why it why it was that the film industry didn't try to take a little bit more because i actually think what I truly do believe that um, that film critics mm-hmm. uh, are some of the worst people uh, in in journalism. I think that it is they t- they don't look at things from. And I think book reviewers can sometimes be a little bit yeah. like this. Um, I, like, there's nothing that pisses me off more than people who review books who have never written a book. Like, <laughs> you don't understand how to write a book. You shouldn't get to. You shouldn't get to review one. See, I don't know that I agree there. Actually, I, I, okay, keep go, go push back. So, so here's so here's the thing, right? Uh, it is not a new thing that everybody's a critic, right? Um, the difference is now is that people have an outlet for their criticism that can be highly visible, right? Yes. Like. 50 years ago, if you're watching a sporting event, like, you know, or let's say 30 years ago, I remember watching like sports with my dad and my dad had very strong opinions on like, you know, the, 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 the quarterback reads of, of various football teams. The difference is now he can go online and talk all kinds of shit about that, that quarterback. And the same thing is true of movies. The same thing is true of, of books. I, 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 there, there's sort of three questions there. So one, I, I think that what's new is, is that now you have a place where people can go and like raise their voices and have their voices heard in a way that they couldn't before. I think that's a new phenomenon. That's w- without, without question. It's a, it's, it gives... It gives but it gives equality to something yes. that I don't think should be equal. Well, and I think that's the next question, which is who is entitled to have an opinion that is heard about a fundamentally subjective thing like art, right? Yes. And I think that there are it, it, sort of both versions cut both ways, right? I, I have a fundamental distaste for a critical establishment that just like the industry in no way represents the audience at all, right? Like most critics, if you look historically or even present day, the vast majority of critics are still straight white men who are evaluating content from a straight white male perspective. There are films, there was a film at Sundance this year called Zola that uses a lot of cultural leitmotifs that I am certain that most of those critics do not have the vocabulary to even process, right? So. Are they entitled, if you, don't, if you don't know what baby hair is, are you entitled to review a movie that you literally uses baby hair to make a very specific point about the relationship between black women and white women in the first shot of the movie? I don't know. The flip side is, right, you have 
everybody's a critic and no one has, or the vast majority of those people don't have a, a deep well of, of cultural knowledge or a deep well of knowledge about the medium that they're trying to issue criticism on, um, that can be a bad thing too because then you get these sort of mob situations where people are like, that's bad and it's like, no, but, it's not. Or that's good, and it's not. Um, and then the third sort of thing that you brought up that I think is, is, is are these scores, right? Rotten yeah. Tomatoes, yeah, yeah, yeah. IMDb. I have, I'm deep, I have deeply complicated feelings about them. I'm very much a math person. Um, but there are fundamental flaws with trying to capture any artistic work with a single number, right? And well, that, for me, is, I think, places like where Rotten Tomatoes and IMDb and all those places fail. At a minimum, I'd love to see a distribution of scores to get a better sense of how people are actually responding to a piece of material. I, that's what my point is. So I, the, I remember years ago, Netflix had, and I just want to clarify, I don't think that, that people who haven't written books shouldn't be able to review books. I think that, the, that there are certain things that one understands about certain topics yeah. and that they shouldn't be they shouldn't be able it's what you just said like about the about baby hair and so on like i don't think that i think that that we should put just because you are a book reviewer doesn't mean you should have to say, you get to say what every single book is is is, right. is it good or bad there are certain genres with which and i think that where and my hope was always that oh the the masses will be able to give things a a, a you know a score that is will be more likely but that hasn't worked either no, and hasn't. i think that the my larger point is that like if you look back to the early days of Netflix, I remember they were having trouble with their algorithm, right? yeah, where they were I trying this to recommend, really well. yeah. and they had the problem, which was the, the Napoleon, Napoleon Dynamite, Dynamite problem. Yeah. And so they, and and the Napoleon Dynamite problem was that fifty percent of people who watched Napoleon Dynamite fucking loved it. Right. I'm I'm in that group. Same. Fifty percent of people fucking hate it. Exactly. Right. So they couldn't recommend. If you've watched Napoleon Dynamite, you'll also like X. Yeah. Because they couldn't figure it out. So right. They, and it was also like the fifty percent of people that loved it, like it didn't really indicate what you would think about other movies. It was like this weird outlier where like people who we thought would hate it loved it and people we thought would love it hated it and we can't get any signal on that. Yeah. But it seems like that, you know, I, I fall victim to this too. Like, you know, my wife and I'll be like watching it, like, you know, we'll be scrolling through the thing and yeah. then you'll be like, well, what's the, what's the rotten score? Oh, 50. Oh, I'm not, I'm not going to watch right. that. Or, it's got a 97. And then you watch it and you're like, that's got a 97. Yeah. And, and I just, I guess the question I have is, and maybe you don't have the answer because no one does, is it seems like it, given that a movie or TV series or even podcast or whatever can yeah. live and die by that number, yeah. that it would behoove the industry to put more pressure on themselves to actually try to build something or back something or to that would be a better indicator than a single number that's either decided by 20 critics mm -hmm. and and that look at movies in a very very different way than most normal human beings do yep. uh and also have biases you know about certain directors and actors and so on and so forth yeah um and and then the masses it seems Right. Yeah. One hundred percent. It's actually something that I spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, it's also why I prefer Metacritic to Rotten Tomatoes. I think that their their use of numbers is a little bit more valuable than Rotten Tomatoes, which is this like, you know, ninety seven means ninety seven percent of the people 
thought it wasn't bad, <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Which is, but it doesn't mean that the yeah. movie is 97% good. And I think that that's a... And Metacritic does what? Uh, well, Metacritic, Definitely. instead of just saying sort of, it's, it's, it's not binary, right? So on, on Rotten Tomatoes, each critic is either thumbs up, thumbs down. Mm. Metacritic assigns a score one to 100 based on the level of enthusiasm from each review, right? So if I liked it, but it was just okay... I love the irony of there's a reviewer reviewing the review to give it a, a yeah. score. I'm actually, yeah. they may actually solicit those numbers from the reviewers themselves. I'm not sure about that, but they're looking for, in addition to did people like it or not, they're looking for levels of enthusiasm, right? So like a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes means that of all the average response to the movie was 90% positive, whereas Rotten Tomatoes, it just means that 97% of the reviewers had a net positive response. And that may seem like a distinction without a difference, but it is rather dramatic in terms of, especially for movies that are good but not great, that's where you see a gap uh, in their numerical response. What I will say is, I actually do have an idea for an app that would solve literally all of these problems with massive adoption. I'm not going to get into the specifics of it on this podcast, but if, someone, like wants, but if someone wants to get in touch with me to talk about it, by all means, I'm very much available on social media. Um, all right, last couple of questions for you. Uh, the first one is, I have read a ton of scripts just for fun yeah. uh, that are about politics, the Trump administration, uh, you know, the rise and fall of the alt-right, this, that, and the other. And yet I haven't seen any of them actually come out. Yeah. Um, why is it that the industry hasn't? Is it because there isn't an appetite for it or that um, they weren't good? I mean, I felt like they were good. No, I feel like it, it's, it's, again, it's a fear of... You know, look, we, we live in highly polarized times. Roughly 50% of the country supports the Trump administration, as difficult to believe as that I is. it's 43%. I, yeah, it's, it's somewhere in that 40 to 50 range, but it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people. Right? And, and so... None of them listen to this podcast, right. so do not worry. <laughs> but I think the fear of making those movies is, is that not only will are you, you know, removing half your audience before you start, but you're also incurring the wrath of that very vocal 40% on your other films, right? So if I'm a studio and I'm putting out five movies a year and one of those movies is an indictment of the Trump administration, am I worried that there's going to be a mass boycott of the other four movies that I make? And is it worth, is the upside of that one anti-Trump film worth the downside for those other four films that I also want to be successful? My guess is that that's the primary driving factor. The other thing is I would say that like, uh, you know, we're only three and a half years into the Trump administration. The life cycle on films is actually very slow. So it's entirely possible that there are things that are out there that may get made in the coming years uh, that directly address it. And then the last thing I would say is the best way, for me at least, and this is my Franklin Leonard's opinion about this, is that the best way to address these things is actually not to do it by call, by focusing specifically on the Trump administration. I would argue that Jojo Rabbit is a movie that comments on the Trump administration, and I believe that... It was a brilliant film. Yeah, and I believe that many of the people who were involved in making it explicitly thought that as they were making it. It is, it is an anti-hate satire, self-described, and if you're trying to satirize people who hate in 2020, I mean, I think we all know what Trump is and represents. All right, last question for you, probably the hardest question. Bring it on. What's your favorite script that you've ever read? <sighs> I hate this question. Um, or you can give me a no, couple. No, 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 you can give, give me a couple. couple. All right, so what's interesting is that most of these um, have to do with a personal connection to the material or the writer and not necessarily just the script. So 
My favorite script sort of experience ever was actually the script for The King's Speech. I read that script. Uh, the writer, David Seidler, uh, was in his mid-70s. He didn't have an agent at the time. He just had a manager. And I had a stutter as a kid. And so I read it and was moved by it. And I remember thinking, this is incredible. And I sent it to a bunch of agents and said, hey, it's a brilliant script. And I think I, I think I still have the emails where I was like, I feel like if it can get made well, it can win Best Picture. And you know, at that stage in my career, that was a bold claim. I mean, even now, that, that's a bold claim when you sort of send out a, a clean script like that. But I just had an instinct about the fact that it was exceptional. And, you know, a lot of people read it and they thought it was good. And then they were like, oh, what's the deal with the writer? And I'm like, well, he's in his 70s. And they were like, yeah, well, how many more scripts is he going to write? Um, so the, they didn't engage because they didn't see a financial upside, like a long-term financial upside to working with him. And I remember when the movie premiered at the Toronto Film Festival, he still didn't have an agent. Wow. Um, and, and obviously it went on to win Best Picture and Best Screenplay, or Best Adapted or Original Screenplay that year. And so to, to have that story bear fruit was, was really, really cool. And then another one is Jojo Rabbit. You know, I've known Taika. Taika and I met at Sundance in 2004 when he was in, uh, didn't have an agent. Uh, I was an assistant at CAA. Uh, we met at a party. I watched his short film, which interestingly also was nominated for an Academy Award the next year, gave it to my boss. She watched it, brought him in and signed him. Seven years later, his script's on the blacklist. Seven years later, it gets made, and, and now he's an Academy Award winner for Best Adapted Screenplay. So these are like personal, these, these are more about like my personal relationship with the script more than it is the script being terribly exceptional, but those if you had two, to pick an, If you had to pick a terribly exceptional script. Man, I feel like there's really no way for me to answer this question without offending like literally everybody. Okay, so just pick a random, a random exceptional script or a couple of them that you think, oh, this is a great script. If I'm a film student and I'm like, which one should I read? I just landed from Mars. I'm a film student on Mars. Which script should I read? So if you're trying to learn how to write screenplays, my, my advice to you is not to read. I mean, you can read unmade screenplays, but actually I would go online, find a bunch of movies that you love doesn't matter the genre. It doesn't matter if anybody else thinks they're good. Go online and find the script online. Most of them will be there. Watch the movie and read the script simultaneously. Try to understand how the person who saw the movie first in their head put it on the, pap on the page and then watch how other people translated it from the page to the screen and then try to understand why it is that you love the thing, how much of that is represented on the page, how much of it is purely in the words and the dialogue and the action stuff and how much of it is some other kind of alchemy that allowed them to make you feel the way that you did about watching that movie. On that note, that's a wrap, folks. Thank you so much for taking the time today, Franklin. This has been fascinating. Thank Where can people friend. find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Franklin Leonard, Instagram at Franklin J. Leonard, and the blacklist is on both at the BLCKLST. And the website is BLCKLST.com. And you can feel free to argue with him about politics, and he will argue back on Twitter. Yeah, I'm trying to do better about that, but yeah, probably. Do it. Bring it. Bring it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks to my guest this week, Franklin Leonard. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. That's me. And come on, if you're going to leave a review, leave a nice review. Don't be like all those other jerks out there leaving nasty reviews. You can find, of course, our podcast on applepodcastradio.com and anywhere you get your podcasts. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thank you, of course, to my sponsors this week, Condé Nast and Netgear. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you all next week after the next primary. Diddle -diddle -diddle -diddle.